Thanks for downloading this episode from Teachers Talk Radio. You can find the full schedule and listen back to all our shows at ttradio.org. Enjoy the podcast. Good evening and welcome to Teachers Talk Radio on Thursday, the 30th of November, the last day of November. Your students will be opening their advent calendars tomorrow. Um, and here, right on time, it's the one and only Brent Poland. <laughs> I'm shocked. I'm shocked. You've never been on time before, not while I've been hosting. And you're here bang on half past seven. So congratulations, Brent. I, I just do that to annoy you because I know I knew it wasn't you. I'm only joking. No, I'm, You've well been wanna... being on time. I was uh, <laughs> going to do a little bit of a you got to do the unpredictable sometimes to keep people on their toes. Yeah, I am not the, the greatest timekeeper in the world. I, I think it's uh, I think it's a bit of an Irish thing. Um, it's a, it's a, we're, we're a bit more lax on, on time. T- you know, timetables are a little less sort of thing. But yes, um, got, a, got a show tonight where, where I want to actually get into uh, a bit of what uh, Spielman said last week. Um, obviously looking at... Um, her sort of outgoing statement and there was there was something in her outgoing statement which I thought was quite interesting which was this idea of um, the social contract between families and schools um, breaking down and it seems that she is throwing COVID as the kind of the curveball that kind of broke a lot of the system and broke a lot of the sort of um, the relationship between schools and, and pupils. So I want to explore that. Do we think it is COVID? Do we actually think that the social contract, so to speak, has broken down? Do we agree in part with that? Or do we do we think it's something more that's going on in society or schools, academization, you know, funding, uh, SEND provision? There's, the, there's a very nuanced discussion about, well, what is this idea of the social contract and has it you know broken down and is it really you know covid was the catalyst for this as she is suggesting uh, i think like a broken watch i think you know it has the time is, is right once a day i think there is something in what she has said there um unfortunately it got clouded in that uh, all the other things that came out with her last sort of um her last report and then in very much was overshadowed by her quite insensitive comments um, regarding the, the death of Ruth Parry. And of course, this week we're seeing the inquest into that, which is is, is quite insightful as well. So um, I'd like to unpick that comment, which I think has got some merit, this idea of the social contract between families and schools. Um, Talking about the inquest, Brent, yeah. it's been really interesting to follow, I, I think. Um, and we don't quite... You know, because we're teaching all of the time, we can't quite follow it as it happens. But I always like to catch up on what's happened um, in the day and the evening. Um, One of the things which I've noticed is that this has had quite a lot of cut through with teachers who generally don't always focus on sort of what's going on in the wider world of education. Because not all not all teachers do, um, but this inquest, I've been I've spoken to teachers who normally you know stuff's going on with offset and spill and whatever and they're like well i kind of know it's going on but this inquest people seem to be really following it and i find that fascinating i think you're right i think it has um i think because of just ruth was one of us she was just one of those teachers that you would have been privileged to work with and from everybody's you know you know obviously we've 
we kind of, those of us who never knew her got to know her by all the testimonies of those that did work with her. And I know her, her sister's done a great job of, of, you know, and the family's done a great job of fighting in her, in her stead and not letting this go. And I know that we saw, you know, some, you know, some other head teachers go in and support, didn't we? And say, look, this, this wasn't right. It just didn't sit well with us because it's one of our own. It's one of our own who went into the job and basically you could sense just loved the kids, loved the job, loved being a head teacher through a heart and soul, blood, sweat and tears into creating a school that from even reading through the Ofsted report, apart from that horrible line and that horrible, you know, um, criticism, which seems to be unfounded, that it was a school that I'd be proud to have my two children attend. And and that I think has struck struck a chord with people within the educational establishment. I'd say we are all Ruth in that sense, because we've all had that feeling of a sense of injustice and unfairness of either an Ofsted report, um, an SLT, or an inspection, or we've all felt at some stage in our career that we've just been unfairly treated by a organization within the education system. And I think that's where this is cut through, is that we can relate to it. We we can almost imagine somebody we know who is a Ruth, who has suffered in education and has sadly left the profession, or unfortunately in Ruth's case, you know, she, she left us. And, and I think there is something about that, that she just represents for me, the canary in the coal mine. And I think that's what it is. I think it's just that she is just an ordinary everyday you know, head teacher doing her best for her kids, giving of herself. And 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 unfortunately, she wasn't, the Ofsted report didn't treat her right. And I think her family and those of us who fought for her are completely vindicated by what's coming out in the inquest. It's, I must be honest, I told you so, but it is starting to, to vindicate those that haven't let it go. And, and, and that makes the comment by by Spielman, the, 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 that horrible comment that it has been used by people to almost score points. And I think that is very wrong because all we want, the people like us still in education, is we just want a better education system and a fairer, a fairer way of being judged. Um, and that's that's what it is. So I think I think it struck a chord. You're right. It has cut through and, and it has gotten more notice than most of the background that usually gets. Mm. I think Spielman has sort of positioned herself over the last seven years as being against teachers rather than with teachers. And she sort of sees teachers and particularly school leaders as sort of forms in the mission of Ofsted rather than as professionals and colleagues to work alongside. And I think part of that reason is because Spielman's never taught. Yes, she's been on a school's leadership team in the past, but mm. not in any teaching capacity. She's never led a school. She's never sat in shoes and you see that a lot with her talk she says you know when she talks on the radio and things because she says well every single Ofsted inspector has been a leader for five years so it's like well actually quite a lot of your Ofsted inspectors Amanda are not have never been in a senior leadership position they've only ever held middle leadership positions mm -hmm. and so how can they possibly understand what's going through the mind of a head teacher during an Ofsted inspection if they've never sat in the chair themselves and that's something that Sam Stickman talks about quite a a lot as well when he talks about Ofsted and the fact that Spielman's never been a teacher never been a leader means that she cannot possibly understand what goes through the minds of teachers and leaders during an Ofsted inspector inspection and therefore it allows her to position herself as sort of this sort of you know regulator we're not going to tell we're not going to help schools improve we're just going to 
turn up and tell them that they're inadequate. And, you know, I think there has been quite a lot of good with Offset, particularly with the new framework, which allows schools mm. to actually, you know, you know, focus much more on curriculum and what it is they're actually teaching and stop some schools from gaming the system as much. Um, but when we actually look at what Spielman's legacy is going to be, Ruth Perry is going to be quite a sizable chapter. I think you're right. I think that the uh, she may try and change history on that, but the same the fact of the matter on her watch, um, her organisation is much reviled. She's she's done one of the things that I think is is quite quite difficult to do sometimes in education because we educationalists do like our debates, we do like our arguments, we we do have our different positions, but she seems to have done is unite the teaching profession ironically against her organisation. And, and that's by your, I think you're correct, in the adversarial nature of how Ofsted was almost like the secret police. I often refer to them as the Stasi. You know, we're going to get a visit from the secret police. Big Brother is watching you. And it was that kind of mantra of, we can't be trusted. We've got to check up on these people. We've got to keep an eye on you. And that, it just, that's, that's how it felt. It, it felt that you are being judged. And even the judgment itself comes down to a horrible statement of inadequate or, and even that starts to become, I'm in an inadequate school, I'm an inadequate teacher, I'm in, you know, I'm an inadequate head teacher. It, our kids are inadequate. It, it's horrible labelling of either teachers, their children, their community, and their organisations sometimes. It's just horrible, horrible, horrible. Talking and I think of, that's the legacy. Talking of horrible things, did you know that Ofsted can now pause an inspection if they're worried about the well-being of a head teacher or senior leader? Because... It turns out, according to this inquest this week, but you can, and Ofsted can, but literally nobody, including the inspectors delivering um, the inspection, knew that this was a thing. <laughs> so, excuse me, um, I, I, you, you could then, uh, you could, you know, you could, I didn't know that. No, I didn't. I, I'm not um, accusing anybody of making anything up here on Ofsted's side, side but... I think this we've had quite a few fascinating things from the inquest so far. We can't talk too much about it because it's ongoing, and we'll be able to talk about it more next week. Was it next week or week after when the um, when the report is published? Um, but but we can report what has been reported, and one of the one of the interesting sort of um, tidbits that came out was was her husband, and he he went as far as saying that he believed the inspector. So. An inspector was a bully with an agenda, and and that came from Ruth, Ruth Perry's husband, who who basically said that um, she'd been rated outstanding, um, but it not been reinspected as a result, and and she he felt that you know she was powerless, and accused the inspector of being denial. Um, Miss Perry also told her colleagues that she had thought about taking her own life during the weekend after the inspection. Oh God bless her! The lead inspector agreed that he had not followed up on concerns. For Perry's well-being with the school governors, but I told the inquest I had a good, very, a, a very good understanding of mental health. So there were signs there that she was struggling. There were signs there. Ofsted, it seems, were aware that the impact that their judgment was having on her. And I, I be honest with you, I think they failed in their duty of care for her. I think they have more, and that's a judgment that obviously that that, that has to be made in some aspects because. Are, the thing is, are they responsible? At what level are they responsible for, for, for Ruth? And that is the, what the inquiry has to then come to a judgment on, doesn't it? But here we have the husband and colleagues saying that she felt she was being bullied. Which... Well, a couple of um, interesting lines from the um, inquest about the chief inspector. 
Um, and, uh, you know, somebody said here that we got more of a sense of the side of him you'd experience if you were subject to one of his inspections. Firstly, it was pointed out to him that much of his evidence regarding his interpretation of events during the inspection was given as witness testimony. In fact, this interpretation neither matches his written evidence nor the notes he'd taken during the inspection. And this is a fierce response of, why am I here then if my word is not to be believed? Um, and similarly, mm -hmm. when he was facing questions from the crowdfunded lawyer of the family um, about his unpleasant and mocking tone, about how he'd shut down discussion by raising his hands in a stop gesture, um, he replied, um, well, on day, well, he's, it, it, when it was suggested to him that his behaviour meant staff were unlikely to approach him to seek some respite for Reef Perry, he snapped back that nobody complained and further asserted that Reading Borough Council wouldn't hire him for trading if he wasn't personable. Oof. That, 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 the, the finger across the back, that's, oh, that's, uh, oh, uh, that, that's just got me going, that has. And, he, and, and this has been reported. Ofsted is not responsible for the welfare of Ruth Perry, the head teacher who unfortunately took her own life, according to a senior officer. Um, the National Director for Education at Ofsted said actual responsibility for the welfare of the head teacher sits with others, such as the local authority and the governing body for the local authority one school. However, Ofsted does feel responsibility to reduce stress and anxiety around inspections. When Ofsted trains inspectors, he said, we talk about how to manage the inspection in a way which reduces stress and where people are getting anxious how you manage those situations. He added, Mrs. Perry's family's claims that her suicide was a result of Ofsted planning to downgrade her school rating um, was not true, and the inspection found it to be a good school in every other category except leadership and management. Her sister has called the process a complete injustice. So there we have members of Ofsted defending themselves, saying, it's not us, you know, it's not our responsibility. It's the responsibility of the governors of the school, the responsibility of the local authority. And and that's basically shir shirking, I believe, their actual responsibility for this. And and that it, it, it's at the heart of it. It really isn't it when you think about it. And that's yeah. all come out this week. The other question, of course, and oh, mm. I've forgotten what I was going to say now. Uh, <laughs> oh, I'll try and remind myself. Um, what were you saying? So is Ofsted responsible for a teacher's well-being? Well, yeah, but Ofsted sort of abdicates responsibility for everything. It's not responsible for improving schools, only evaluating them. Um, teacher's well-being is, you know, somebody else is responsible for that. It seems as though, you know, Ofsted just rock up, come in, tell a school how good they are, and then go away. And, yeah, I think, I don't know what's going to happen after the next election. Um, Labour talk about a sort of report card thing. I've got no idea how that would work and be different because, you know, whatever, you know, whatever's introduced will be the new high stakes judgment. Um, here's, now, here's a question for you, Brent. And bear in mind, we are Teachers Talk Radio here. And, you know, one of our main responsibilities is to stand up for the hardworking teachers and leaders across the country. But my question is, do you, sincerely think that 89% of schools in this country are good or outstanding? No. I think that's a politically motivated way. Look, do I think that, you know, statistics, statistics and damn statistics, do I think that governments basically, give you the example, Margaret Thatcher removed um, calculations and changed calculations for unemployment data 14 times in the 1980s and every time she did, an average of 50,000 people disappeared off the old unemployment register. You have this in other walks of, of, of life when it comes to government statistics and the government figures. We, we are living in an age of, of, you know, how information is used and spread around. 
Do I trust that the government is saying that the 89% of our schools are good or outstanding? No, I don't. Mm. Do I think that they're using certain tools to say, look at our, look at us, we, under the last government, X amount of schools were rated as, I'm sorry, but ceteris paribus. Ceteris paribus, all things being equal. All things are definitely not equal. Funding's not equal. Schools are not equal. And you, you cannot compare schools over time because, honestly, I've worked 20 years in education and I don't see the direction of travels getting more positive. No. But that's the problem is they, this is just spin statistics and, and again, using a measurement of Sims League tables, so you know yourself, league tables can be gained, data between schools can be gained. I think we need to get away from these comparisons, even regionals, you know, what the students get in different regions is hard to compare, never mind. We, we have schools in the same postcode and sometimes it's hard to compare when you've got completely different intakes and completely different backgrounds. Um, so that's where I, I don't like that. Again, I don't like that idea that even when people say this is a good school, this is an outstanding school, I don't think that works because in one way it might be, in other ways it might not be, you know, and I think that in itself, the judgment of a school should always be for me is exactly what the type of school that ironically Ms. Parry had created. And that was loving, affectionate, compassionate, you know, kids want to go to school, kids love the school, they love their teachers. You read all those comments and you read that community and you say, that's what a school should be at the centre of a community, part of a community you know, affectionately thought of by the community, which links into what my theme tonight is, that social contract is strong between the school and its community. And Ofsted did not, did not measure, did not actually say that a school which is outstanding for its community, doing everything you'd want a school to do for that community. For me, that's an outstanding school. And you wouldn't need an Ofsted inspection to know that. The people who, who I've spoken to, the people you've heard talk about the school, actually says that even the Ofsted report says that but how could they come to that judgment that the, the parents themselves would have judged the school as outstanding the teachers would have judged the school as outstanding the children themselves were saying all of that evidence is saying it but then through what reason whatever agenda was there to mm. downgrade that school that's what was being played it's felt like it does feel in some Ofsted inspections that some schools are just going to be failed because yeah, well, this is, leads on to our next question, which I've just remembered now, because what we've learned from the inquest is there is considerable pressure put by the duty HMIs at Ofsted um, to give that inadequate judgment and deem safeguarding to be ineffective, because the line from the inspectors um, who are actually in the school was that they wanted to say that essentially the safeguarding was borderline effective. And in times like that, you've got, you know, you've got to take the benefit of the doubt. Do you think, and we, I don't think anybody from Ofsted is going to listen to this because I don't want to get sued. Um, do you think that there is a deliberate campaign by Ofsted, basically instructed by the government to take schools like Cabisham that are local authority controlled and give them an inadequate judgment so they can be, so that they can fulfil their dream of all schools in an academy trained by 2030? Absolutely. I think when you look at the timing and you look at the, the government dropped that as a policy officially. They dropped that that they wanted every school to be an academy by 2030. But they still said they desired, they desired the school being, um, a, you know, local authority. Do I have instances where I've seen other schools being taken over by multi-academy trusts? Absolutely. My own multi-academy trust only exists as a protection. And it was to get all faith Catholic-based schools in a certain area under... Catholic school control rather than have it gobbled up by another organisation. And that's kind of what's been happening to a lot of schools. They've just been 
how do we say it, bought over like venture capitalists. It's just like, you know, here's the school, it's it's inadequate. It's going to be taken over by this multi-academy trust, and here it's now sponsored by, and I'm sorry, but that's what's been happening in education. And yes, some schools have needed help, but then comes in the new branding, the new uniform, the new this, that, the other, and all of a sudden they're reinspected, and it's like, wow, they're better now. And I do think a lot of this Ofsted agenda has been used to secretly, let's be honest, privatise education, because education is practically semi-privatised. There's Where's the accountability of local authority control? And that's the thing, it's interesting, because my own daughter's school is in local authority control, and I would be at that school gates, chaining myself to a school gate if I had to, if they even touched it. If they went anywhere near my daughter's school and some organisation wanted to take it over, I am out there. <laughs> I'm, I'm tell you, I wouldn't be the only one. There's a lot of parents would feel very strongly. It works. It's a good little school. It's under local authority control. It's fine. If it's not broke, don't fix it. That school, Ruth Parry School, was fine. If it wasn't broke, it didn't need fixing. It was absolutely doing the job from every indicator you can see there. And there's no other reason whatsoever that is logical or rational to explain why Ofsted would go in there and fail it on a technicality. It's like they were looking for something. Yeah. It's like they went in to look for something, found a little bit of, of, of dirt under the fingernails, and then they used that. They weaponized that. And and that's what it feels like. And I, I would say, if you spoke to a lot of other individuals up and down the country, they've probably seen that type of takeover. Because that's what it is. It feels like a company takeover, doesn't it? When you think of it from that rational term of this school was now under local authority control, now it's under the control of, boom. And I think that is a philosophical agenda of free market capitalization and liberal liberal sort of liberal economics of we don't want schools to be responsible and we don't want well we don't want local authorities to be responsible for schools. We want schools to be businesses. And I'm sorry, schools have become more business orientated. Oh massively. Massively. You know. Um, I, I should say at this point, um, because we don't want to get sued, but Ofsted will, of course, <laughs> deny um, that it has any role, that it's being instructed by the government to make local authority schools inadequate so they can be um, made into an academy. Um, and, of course, we have no proof to suggest, we have no hard, solid evidence to suggest that. We All we do as teachers, we do this all the time, is we look at patterns and we make hypotheses. And that's all we're doing here so there's no hard proof and officer will of course deny it and of course we can't say for certain that this is going on it's only a hunch you'd make a good lawyer you would oh i'd be a great lawyer i'd love 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 it well, uh, politicians, politics and history you know qualifications politics, do oh, end up going in it's been so good to teach i was off sick yesterday um awful headache and just you know felt like i was going to be sick every 30 minutes um what I was able to do yesterday, which is something I've not been able to do for a long, long time, is sit at home on the sofa and watch Prime Minister's questions. And I just thought to myself, I, I, if, if I was in Starmer's shoes, I'd be having a whale of a time. I'll just be, you know, I, I think I feel as though he really enjoyed it yesterday. And that moment when Lindsay Hoyle turned the microphone off on Sunak as he was saying, Britain's not listening, I just feel as though that's going to be a footnote in a chapter of a book somewhere in the oh, next I few think Jim, years. I think Jim's clever. He's going to have a footnote. <laughs> that's a clinker, isn't it? The, it? You know what I felt like? That yes. felt like the kid in class that you know has said something. And you've the got thing is, it. He, is he still denying it? Yes. And it's so He's still denying obvious. it. We need, a prop, we need a head of year nine in there. You, you know, re, 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 play the recording and go... 
So go on then, James. What you're really saying, man? You, it I wasn't me, Charlie. It was somebody you. else. I mean, isn't it? There is a guy in government who basically turned around and said something about another MP's area, and he's caught he quite clearly audible, audibly, and then he's banged a right, and his first response is. You know, I didn't do it. No, no, I, I didn't do it. No, I didn't mean him. I thought I meant. I know. I, I, I was something else. And you're like, you are, you are like, you're acting like you're right. You're acting like a year seven, year eight, year nine. You're acting like a lower school kid who's basically buying the rights. Who you then goes, sorry, it wasn't me. It wasn't me. It was them. We were all talking. And you're like, these are the guys. And I mean, I you answer the question of why are we the social contract being broken. The thing about social contract is the social contract between government and its citizens is absolutely completely rocking at the moment. And we saw that again during COVID because the social contract between government and citizens is we elect people in charge, we hope that they act in our good stead and they have an obligation to ensure our safety. That was always the social contract. I always, always, the unwritten rule that we entrust our government with authority and power to rule over us in order to make sure that they, they have, at the first and foremost, they defend the country if it's under attack. They have a duty to defend the country. They have a duty to ensure that it's, your citizens are safe and that they are looking after our best interests. And when you look at the social contract, which we're going to move on to in a second, in schools, that social contract in schools is always parents will support schools. Parents will send their children to school. They'll make sure they have the correct equipment. They will try as best as possible to support the policies of the schools. And that was always, you know, you, we, we invest in schools. Schools are ours. We care about schools and schools are where we send our children and we trust that schools do the best for our children. And there was the kind of that kind of holy trinity of the child, the, the, the school, the parent, and all sort of working in the same tandem that we all understand each other's roles. We all understand what it is we're expected to do. But this is where it's all coming. The wheels are coming off. But going to making the link, when, when I was on, on, on um, talking on national media recently, when somebody said, well, why is the discipline so bad in schools? Why is the discipline? You know, what's going on? What's what's the difference? And my actual response was, how can I hold the line with children and tell children to follow the rules? And the very people in charge of the country who are meant to be a party of law and order are breaking the rules in the very government building where the rules are being set. And here we have another example of, you know, a government minister who swears at another, you know, calls another government minister a horrible word, which if you, if you caught that in the middle of a classroom, he's on a fixed exclusion. The guy should be straight out and straight out of parliament and, and banged to rights. But there it is. He's not being held to count. So it, I, I find it quite fascinating what's happening to society mirrors what's happening in parliament. And then people are wondering why schools are struggling because we're holding a line. We're trying to be standards. We're trying to hold some moral kind of compass of here's right and wrong, little Johnny. You know, here's here's the difference between right and wrong. And, and I had a lesson about a year, a year and a half ago. I was teaching Oliver Cromwell, who's controversial, obviously, in my background. And I, just, I tried to balance it out. Hero and villain, good things, bad things. He banned Christmas. Hey, but he, he still led the model army and he, he created an absolutely fantastic army. He was brave. You know, he, he did a lot of good things, brought Jewish people back, you know, which is something that hadn't been done before. So he has his good points. He has, his, obviously, the, the situation which he did in Ireland and Scotland. And I tried to show the balance both sides. He can be both a hero and villain, nuanced argument. And there's, there's a piece of evidence in, in the textbook which has Oliver Cromwell at his daughter's wedding. He banned Christmas, he banned music, he banned alcohol, he banned this, he banned that. And the kids are always shocked, like, why the Christian guy banned Christmas? And they're like, I don't know, you want to ask the guy why? <laughs> you know, it's sinful. It was too much drinking, it was too much fun. And there's too much, you know, debauchery going on at Christmas, too much present giving. It wasn't pure enough. And, and then it shows his wedding, his daughter's wedding. There was music, there was alcohol at his daughter's wedding. And one of the kids looked at me and went, sir, sir, so he's in charge and he's telling people what to do and he's, and he's banned all these things. 
but for his own daughter, I went, yeah, we have a name for that. Well, speaking that of, speaking of which, Matt Hancock was at the COVID inquiry today. I haven't been. I'm neither. Just give me a second. I'm neither there. I'm only turning around and saying, he goes, the kid, straight out of the horse's mouth, you're right, kid. He goes, so that's just like the guys in charge of government at the moment. I'm like, oh, there you go. History is a way of repeating itself. That of whatever you keep telling you about the patterns of history. But yes, Matt, he was there, wasn't he? Uh, I didn't see much about it. But what was he saying? Well, he, he says he first told Boris Johnson to lock down on the 13th of March. And I can't remember. But he was asked, well, there's no evidence that you did this. And he's like, oh, no, I definitely did. I was like, oh, like, all right. And yeah, don't believe you, but we'll carry on. Well, that's when the Republic of Ireland was locked down. I remember thinking at the time, going, why are the schools in the Republic of Ireland locked down a week earlier? And, and it was the strangest week in my teaching career. Because all of a sudden, you know, the kids were starting to, you know, there was a filtering down of some kids were, were then, parents were saying, I'm keeping you off. There was a kind of like a, a strange, eerie feeling to school where you're, you're running like a ghost, ghost sort of school. And it was so plainly obvious we were coming close to the end because... Well, then you, you, you would get staff members sneeze, you like, get tested, oh, off you go. So we were down to a skeleton crew members, members of staff, because we'd already sent some home who we suspected may have had it. So we were being playing safe on that, and our, and our attendance went down. And, and even before that announcement, the schools are finally closed. It was just, it was quite surreal watching it happen. It felt like in slow motion. It was like, why are we still open? Why are we still going on here? And, and it was just strange watching Italy and Spain and all these other people. They were locked down in their in their in their in their in their in their rooms and locked down in their in in their cities. And that was a proper, proper lockdown. That was not like yeah, go out for a walk lockdown. That was literally so it's it is interesting looking back on those periods. And it goes to goes to Anne uh, Spellman, which I'll come to in a second. We need to do our sponsor. Let's let's do that then. So this show is all, of course brought to you by John Cat Educational, who like emailing me now. They must know who I am. And they publish professional de- de- development books and resources to support great teaching and learning in schools from here and also around the world. So please check out their latest releases. They have lots of good stuff for Christmas since we're coming up to Christmas. And, and, and if you've got teacher friends, um, then obviously a good John Cat book would be really good for them. You can also use our code, which is JCTTR2324. So that's JCTTR2324. Uh, 2324 and you get yourself 20% off um, your order so please don't miss out and that's johncatbootshop.com and you get their full range of titles and it's really fascinating actually that uh, just such a broad range of of, of, uh, literature that they have for every sort of taste every subject and every sort of sort of bit of CPD second bit of CPD is you could also join myself and Tom and and the rest of the crew at Teacher Talk Radio join the hive mind you will be assimilated and to give you a bit of a shout out, Tom, actually, I, I did think of you today. This is going to sound like a bit of a bromance, but actually one of your shows. And you like this. I was doing um, doing a, a, a PHSE lesson on um, gambling. And of course, I thought, right, gambling, let's get to the loot box thing. And in, in the middle of that, was, was they didn't even mention about the loot boxes. So I was curious and asked the year eights it was. Um, okay, so who does a bit of gambling? And, and they, they were like, oh, we don't do betting and all the rest. And I said, you do. And I says, right, who's, who's been doing some loot boxes recently? And I says, what games are you playing? FA24, uh, Grand Theft Auto, some of the kids are playing. I'm like, that's like nine years old. You were nappies when that came out. But they still, you know, playing Grand Theft Auto. Uh, what else was uh, Fortnite? Massive, massive amount of Fortniters. Uh, funny enough, when I said Minecraft, there's two two hands went up. And that's not cool any longer for 13-year-olds. That's too childish. So there's only two two kids playing Minecraft, and they they looked at each other as if like, yeah, we're still in Minecraft zone. Yeah, it's not Minecraft these days; it's Roblox. If you particularly correct, you big time, and that was that was massively popular. Uh, Fortnite was just the outright winner. 
what was interesting is one of the one of the boys just piped in and he says, Did, you know, have you have you recently purchased any loot boxes or any items, you know, online in your online gaming when you've had to upgrade, when you've had to 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 buy a, a next level character? Uh, and this, this fella just piped in. He says, "Yeah, I spent twenty quid last night." He says, "What did you spend twenty quid?" He says, "Oh, I got messy." And he just went through like it's like I'd asked him what what he was getting for Christmas. I asked like a six year old what Santa's bringing, and his face just looked up like Christmas when he was describing to me all the things he got. Did you get any rare ones? Oh, yeah, I got a rare messy. Yeah, I got I got the one I really needed. I'm like, got the one I really needed. How long we spend last night gaming? Six hours. Okay, where'd you get twenty quid from? I did some gardening for my grandfather. So this is your chore money. So this is your, your chore money you earned from your grandfather by working in the cold and the wet at the weekend. So he's out gardening for his grandfather at the weekend, got 20 quid. And the first thing he does with it is literally gambles it for loot boxes. And what's interesting is some of the kids admitted, this is good feedback for you, Tom, for your show, which I think absolutely nailed it. Some of these kids are spending hundreds of pounds, literally. And I was like, where are you getting the, name, where are you getting the money from? And there's sort of guilty looks of like, are you telling your parents where you... What, where you're getting the money. And it was plainly obvious. I don't think some of the parents know that the kids are doing this, that they're just giving them a few quid and, and, and the kid is like, oh, I need it for that game. So one of the kids even confessed to me, he says, I was telling my parents I was buying a new game. Did you buy the new game? No, I was spending 50 quid on loot boxes. So <laughs> here's the child lying to, his, to their parents. And I'm thinking, look, I've got a lot of paperwork to fill in. There's going to be a lot of my concerns by the end of this. What was yeah, really definitely. interesting. If you, if, you listen, if you listen to what Fred just said there and, your kids in your school are doing that, please do report it to your safeguarding lead yeah. because it is a safeguarding concern. Absolutely. So that was a lot of paperwork I had to do at the end of the day when I was noting down who said what um, and equally. It was, it was, but it was insightful. But what I'm saying is that your, your show, your CPD show, actually was the prompt that changed the direction of my lesson. So thanks for that, Tom. Because No, it's a pleasure. It's one of my favourite shows I've done, to be honest. Um, and if you, you can catch up on that, well, what is, it's called Why is Financial Education Important? Part 1. And that's available on our Listen Back page at ttradio.org forward slash listen back. In other exciting news, Brent... Um, yeah. Uh, uh, unless if you've been living under a rock, you won't know that Teachers Talk Radio has had one million downloads. One million downloads. That sounds like Austin Powers. One million downloads. I love that. One million downloads. One million downloads. Going? Incredible. How long have we going? How long have we been going? Two years, three years? Nearly three. Not not quite three years yet. So yeah, a million is really good, um, and it's really stepped up in November. Um, I think we've had 30,000 downloads in the last month, which is really strong. So, yeah, we're in, we're in an exceptionally good position. Um, and, of course, if you want to host with Teachers Talk Radio and help us get even more downloads, um, you can drop us a DM on our X account um, at TT Radio Official, or you can drop us a line via email. I think it's info at ttradio.org, or you can fill out the contact form on our website as well. We really want to hear from teachers who want to host on Teachers Talk Radio because this whole organisation is run by teachers for teachers. Brent's a full-time teacher. I'm a full-time teacher. Um, got a load of full-time teachers in here. Paul um, Hazard um, is in here. He's hosting at 9pm. Paul's got a great show on at 9pm, by the way, um, in just under his hour's time. He's going to be um, talking about teaching in Warthorn, Kiev. So, that's no. That'll, that's going to be a good one. But, wow, a great we're, show. We're, we're doing the rounds. We we did last last week, which is Lucy's, which was absolutely stonking. 
mm-hmm. um, Afghanistan, and the, the 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 teachers are left behind. That was Joe, wasn't it? From and from the British British Council, the British Council teachers, um, yeah. and that was brilliant. I mean, as somebody teaches who teaches, uh, you know, the Middle East and, and obviously Iraq and, and Afghanistan. Uh, I think we haven't reflected on that. I think that conflict is just it's almost been done, dusted, and move on. And I don't think lessons have been ironically learned. But it's really shocking to realise that we've heard a lot about the interpreters. We've heard a lot about the, those that helped, you know, the twenty-year, you know, Operation Enduring Freedom, which was Britain and America's sort of uh, re, re, trying to re, help Afghanistan actually, because they were really, you know, they the. Um, the, 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 the mission to Afghanistan changed and, and one of trying to create a democracy and actually stability in the country, which unfortunately ultimately failed, mainly because the Americans pulled out, but actually the British end of that was was very noble. And, and the operations that the British did, they were in charge of that operation for quite a few years um, until, until it kind of, unfortunately, I think the way that the Taliban reorganised themselves coming through Pakistan and coming through other countries that were undermined. But it's really, really hard to hear that you've got people who, you know, are trying to educate. And it's it's like the Malala Yousaf thing. There's just parts of the world where you, you just really, really want people to get an education. And, and I think Paul's show, I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing that. I will tune into that because we've hosted, of course, uh, Ukrainian children. We've I've hosted, you know, uh, children who fled, you, you know, Ukraine and ultimately just returned. And it's interesting when I've sat down, I, I, I took it upon myself to be the kind of integrator of the Ukrainian children um, because I, I honestly, I just felt for them because I know what it's like to be dealing with some sort of conflict while trying to go through school. And my my own school at three occasions had windows come through because of explosions and stuff. And that's nowhere near the same level of, of what was happening in, in, in Ukraine or equally, obviously, places like Palestine. But I did sit down with, you know, with, with the children from, uh, you know, Ukraine and, and, and that, that area. And so how are you feeling and what's what's going on? Tell us about it. Whether well, they just needed to offload or have a chat about it. The language barrier is a little difficult sometimes. So I hit upon using um, using PowerPoint with uh, the audio. So actually, it was quite interesting. One of the students, when I was teaching lessons on, on um, trying to teach him history lessons, and I had my PowerPoint set to Ukrainian. And at the end of the lesson, he blessed him, he came to me and says, I don't speak Ukrainian very much. I speak Russian. <laughs> so there's me thinking I'm doing a great job here. And more got to know more, realized he was more from the, 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 the Donbass area, which was actually you know, under Russian control. But some of the stories um, were, were very difficult to hear. And obviously, you know, the, the, the trauma that they were going through. And I just, I do think of, you know, the, the kids that have gone back and I hope they were okay. So that'd be an absolute stonking show, Paul. I really look forward to listening to that. Um, coming back to my own, we're, we're looking now, and I want to have this good discussion with any of you guys can pipe in, have a chat with us and, and see what you think, whether you agree with Spielman about this uh, fractured social contract between families and schools. Uh, because that was the part of her last speech, um, the part that I didn't mind reading as much as, as the other parts about, um, obviously, the, the Ruth Parry situation. But she has said that lower school attendance, poor behaviour and friction between parents and schools is as a result of, of some of the issues that happened during COVID. Um, her annual report is what she, she published that, and she said that in the academic year, it suggests that some parents are more increasingly willing to challenge schools on their policies and rules. I think we could agree with that. I'd, I'd say it'd be hard-pressed to find any of us. You're more than welcome to, to disagree, play devil's advocate, more like happy to, to challenge that. But I think we've, we've established over enough teacher talk radio shows and enough sort of... Um, understanding that there's definitely more parents willing to challenge schools, school policies, 
teachers themselves and actually question um, what schools are doing. And I think that's kind of part also of this culture war stuff that's happening over sex education and gender, school policies on uniform, haircuts. The local media is always awash with stories of, you know, parent outraged with usual face of kind of like, you know, hard you know, compo face, I am angry, I am angry with school. I always wonder, somebody's so angry with their school, the first thing they're going to do is go to the local press. That's going to really repair your relationship with your school. Or other side of it, devil's advocate, are they that angry, that desperate? That they, do they feel that they've got no other choice but to? And I always put two hats on there, the parent hat of has the relationship broken down so much? Is the parent correct? You know, you want to... You, you want to understand why something has created a situation where the child or the parent feels so aggrieved enough that they go to the local authority. And there are times you read the story, which is sometimes clickbaity, you know, school, you know, is doing this to a child. And then you read between the lines, you go, ah, OK, child was expelled. Hmm, I wonder. And then you start to get the other side of it. You think, oh, now let's get into the actual nitty gritty of it. There's more to that. And, and, and sometimes how those things are reported can be very misleading because they've gone with the line of the parent and the parent is right to challenge because that's going to get them more hits. And, and your local newspapers are awash with these small stories. Child not allowed to go to their formal or their, their prom because, you know, a child sent home because of inappropriate skirt lengths. I mean, we all see them. Inappropriate haircut. Petty school sends child home because of wrong peak. I mean, I, I could be a, I could probably be a writer for for all these local media stories because they usually are a certain type. You see, and that has increased. There's no doubt about it. That's increased. But in her final um, inspection report, she suggests that there's a troubling shift in attitudes in education since the pandemic. Again, I wouldn't say that's a revelation. I think there has been a shift in attitudes in some aspects. And that shift that she's saying is parents, some parents are falling out of alignment with those of schools. So she's suggesting there is a, a sort of parents' expectations of schools, parents, what they want from schools versus what schools are delivering. There seems to be a kind of divergence away. Um, and, and that there is less respect for the principle of full-time education across society. So she's making the claim that there is a less sort of respect for the principle of full-time education in society. So there's, is it less important? Is it less valuable? For me, I find this ironic because I think this is the time when we need education more. We're in a cost-of-living crisis. We seem to have widening social differences we've got. Um, social mobility by all measurements is going the wrong direction. And one of the silver bullets, according to our, our prime minister, is that education is one of the silver bullets that can solve a lot of society's problems. I speak as someone who grew up in a fractured society, who was a generation of people who got to go to university for free. And one of the reasons why, you know, there is a relative a relative peace in, in, in where I am is where I grew up. It was because there was access to education there was uh, people able to you know to change their lot in life and when you have prosperity when you have hope when you have education when you have a good job when you've got a good life you're less likely to be on the fringes of society you're less likely to be involved in criminality you're less likely to make wrong decisions and i i i can't understand why society would want to see education as 
less respected because for me, maybe I'm, I'm biased. I am, of course, I am. I work in education. I see the value of it. I am an example itself in the value of education, taking a little working class kid like me from a very disadvantaged background and get me through university. And now, 20 years later, I'm still a teacher. Um, I, I, that's why I'm still in this game. I still think that education is probably one of the most important things for our children. It's, it's the Maslow hierarchy of needs, safety, food, water, education for me. That's the order I'd put them in. Um, but if she's saying society seems to value education different and, quote, unquote, there is less respect for the principle of full-time education. So what do you think? Do you agree? Do you think she's right? I, I dare say it. We have to take the fact that we may have opinions about, about Spielman because of other things. But take it on this alone. Is she is she actually correct on that? Is, is she making a fair judgment that there is less respect for education. I've just seen I've got a couple of uh, comments. Uh, has anybody made me some comments? No? Oh, oh. Paul has said, oh, an ongoing yeah, battle with pupils is with those who don't value the work ethic or see the value in succeeding at daily tasks in lessons. Why do they have this attitude? I know. <laughs> I think I think Paul and I are in the same, same mind on this. I think if we can solve why they've got this attitude i think we should sell that because that's for me is the golden bullet that's the golden bullet that solves a lot of our educational problems is why do some children why do some families why do some people not value an education that's free because that's the other thing I, it's like i don't know if it's appreciated how it's going to sound whiny at me as a teacher but i think of how how I was taught to how I'm taught now, and I, I I literally stay behind every 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 week for my year 11s, and I give up my free time. I buy them pizza sometimes after every half term, and I've recently hit upon like I think they're just taking me for granted. So they were being critical of 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 the lesson style in the last couple of lessons because I just basically want to get their heads down and get them stuck into work. I'm I'm not there to entertain them. I'm there to educate them, and there's a lot of content to get through. And I give them lots of lessons on the page. Here you go. Here's an hour. Get your head down. Get on with it. And and they were like, we don't want to do this. We don't want to do this. And I was like, well, you don't want to do an hour of solid hard work. And they were just just being a little bit not very nice towards me. And I said, you know what I'm going to do, guys? I'm going to go outside for five minutes and take one of those famous uh, rest breaks. You know, one of those famous um, cool down periods that you, you guys get these days. So I'm going to go outside. And I'm going to take five minutes to compose myself and get a bit of fresh air because I'm feeling a bit, bit, bit God out here. And so the back in says, right, okay, I'm, I'm fine. I have, I have a reset. And and they started again. And I said, I tell you what, Thursday night, I'm going to stay behind after school for you. I'm going to go home and see my children. Is that okay? I'm going to give them a free time. I'll think about it after Christmas. And was interested in how straight away then it was like, oh, no, no, we didn't. Mean I said, well, do you, do you not realize that we're here? You know, I'm here to do my best I can for you. I work hard to create these resources. I work hard every day. I stay behind 530 every night. I, I have in, individually tuition. You come to me at any time and ask me for help. I always give it. And I'm like, do you just assume that this is what I do? I'm a dog's body. I'm a, I'm a piece of chewing. I'm in the bottom of your shoes. And I, I just reached that point where I went, you know what? Take a deep breath. I think you just don't appreciate me. Fine. So I withdraw my labour. And that's just what I've done tonight. First time I've done it. And there were two kids arrived and said, are you staying tonight, sir? No, I'm going home. Oh, okay. Now, I just wanted them to remind them that they think I'm there to basically take a lot of that grief. Or is that now what happens? The more that you do, the more is expected and the more it is. And I, I think that's a mirror of a lot of schools. 
we are doing a lot. We're doing more than we've ever done. I think we're working harder than we've ever worked. I think we're under a lot more pressure than we've ever been put under. I think we're more responsible for exam results that are outside our control. When you look at the all of the evidence, again, one of our shows was saying 0.4 or 0.5 of a grade is the teacher, whereas, you know, 0.4 or 5 of the grade is, is attendance. So why should I, you know, why should I be slaving and busting a gut when it's just, oh, well, that's what you do. And one of the children just turned around and says, well, it's your job, isn't it, sir? Yes, that's what you're here for. If you if, if you if you don't like it, just do it. Do a different job. I felt like saying, you know what? I might just do that. And who's going to teach you then? You can go and tell you what you can do. You can go and teach yourself then. If you think there's a replacement out there for me, then go on ahead. You go on ahead. If you want to replace me, then you go on ahead. Sorry about that. Sorry if I'm not good enough. And that's just how I. And I think I don't know how you guys feel about it. That's just the conclusion I came to, where I had a bit of an epiphany, where I thought, what am I doing? I'm a mug. I'm an absolute mug. I'm doing everything. And the more everything I do, they want more. And they just and I love the kids. I think the world of them. But I don't think they are sometimes some parents actually appreciate the little, the little things, the hard work that we do, quick to complain, not quick to support. And I, and that's one of the reasons why I went with the story tonight, because I felt I started feeling that way a little while back. And I thought, this is not me, because I'm the guy that opens his classroom to the kids and it's cold. Come on into my classroom. Closed my classroom the other day because there's just food all over the floor. And I thought, fine. Hold on a second here. Fine. I'll let you into my classroom and you ruin it. I want to close the door. And I'm one of those people that defends children and says, this generation of children are no different to any other generation. But even I'm starting, who's in the positive side of kids, who works really, really hard and builds really positive relationships. So even I'm getting a little bit fed up. And I'll just tell you, i tell you the thing that I'm getting really annoyed. These poor children suffered under COVID. No, 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 Hold on a second here. Many of them sat in their rooms for six months. If they had no internet, they would have been suffering a lot more. Many of them, by the way, admissions were saying, we sat in our rooms for six months and did what? Designed 500 TikTok videos. You know, this whole mantra of these children suffered a lot. I tell you who suffered a lot. Nurses suffered a lot. We kept the schools open. We suffered a lot. It's just, I don't feel appreciated. And I think a lot of schools, a lot of school teachers are at full capacity. They're beyond their remit. They're way beyond their operating kind of, you know, mode. We, we, we're on mission creep. We're social workers, psychiatrists, mid-death supervisors, teachers, you know, therapists, <laughs> teaching subjects well outside our, our own field of expertise. I mean, I'm doing computing at the moment. Last year was physics. And I don't think I'm unique in that. I think that's this is a story that's replicated across education. And then you get Spielman while in going like, well, you know, the contract between schools and, 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 and parents is broken. But part of that reason is because we have never been supported by Ofsted. We never get supported by the government. We don't get supported enough by parents. It's a damn lonely thing being a teacher sometimes when the kids will criticise you, their parents will criticise you, your SLP will criticise you, your teacher criticise you, the results criticise you. Gee, Mary, it's just bloody relentless at the moment. It really is. And I think she's right. I do definitely think she's right. But I think responsibility is where the problem doesn't, doesn't lie. I will take some responsibility for children's results. Absolutely. I'll take some responsibility for some children's behaviour in class if I've applied the wrong behaviour strategy. And I do. I'll hold my hand up and say, maybe it was too hard, not kidding. I'll apologise the next day. But there's a lot of focus on us and not a lot of focus, I think, on those people who really are responsible for the children's education. 
is the primary educator. It's got to be not only society, it's got to be the people who own those children, who are their children guardians and are their children parents. And I am a parent myself. And I do think a lot of parents do the best job they can do. And I think some of it is explained by the busyness of parents, two or three jobs, the cost of living crisis. Some parents are just doing the best they can in the situation they're in. And, and that's that's the way it is. It's, it's a societal issue. It's a, it's an economic issue. It's a postcode issue. It's a lack of social services issue. It's it's individual for different reasons. So there is definitely a thing, I think, and, and, and I'm open to open to any sort of feedback on any of what anything was said, uh, whether you agree or disagree, or maybe I'm just getting a little bit tired, run down end of year, and maybe the kids criticizing me is just sort of tipping me over the edge a little bit because maybe, you know, they're right on some of the things I have to think about. Maybe they are right. You know, maybe they are. Maybe I have to take that on board. We have to sometimes be critical. But it's interesting that we always have to be critical and and we have to reflect and we do and we have to think about our lesson style, our teaching style. Um, our delivery of the resources, the type of resources, the type of resources. We're just constantly reevaluating ourselves, aren't we? We're constantly sometimes criticizing ourselves, which I'm open to. But for me, I'll accept criticism. I think it's fair. And I think schools will accept criticism as fair. But I think we're set up to fail. I think it's I think it's almost becoming an impossible job. I think it's become impossible to please everybody. But as soon as somebody doesn't get what they want, it's kickoff mode. And I think that's happening a lot, that the, the more aggressive people who threaten, and it's interesting about Ofsted, is that they've said, and Spielman said this, that she's had more Ofsted complaints, more referrals to Ofsted. It's like everybody's running to Ofsted, almost like, you know, I'm going to get you into trouble, na 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 and using that as a kind of stick to beat their schools with. I think there are some parents out there who are literally bullies. Sorry, I think they are. I think they... I think they get what they want. They will undermine some teachers. They will undermine some head teachers. Why are nine percent of head teachers just simply, you know, walking? Because they're getting it from their CEO. They're getting it from their own staff. They're getting, you know, the LMT. I mean, God bless those head teachers. They're just getting it from all sides, and then they have to manage the finances. Wow, I mean, that's just an impossible job. And must be such an impossible job when you are constantly second-guessed, constantly undermined, and where is the support coming from? When you used to have local authority schools and, and, and you had governors of 20 or so, you would have collective responsibility. That seems to be less of an issue these days, doesn't it? There seems to be like less collective responsibility, and it's almost like you are to blame. You know, what have you done? And, and literally that level of responsibility for teachers, for some of us, is difficult to stomach, you know, because... We are we how are how far responsible are we for the children that we have? It seems that you know these when something happens in society, they go, "What are they teaching them in schools?" And I hear the next person that tells me, "What are they teaching them at schools? What do they think we do all day long?" You know, but it's like it's a problem in society. That's it. What are they teaching them in schools? Oh, you know, schools need to teach. Do they think we have got that level of control over curriculum? Do they not understand that we can't just go, oh, here, we're going to solve society's problems by, what, turning on a sixpence all of a sudden and doing something new? And we do, sometimes, we saw with um, Andrew Tate, we do respond quite well, quite quickly to some of the things in society. And we, and we, we, we try and do that as much as possible, but we have such a curriculum that is so boring. It is so industrial. It's so content heavy. I've got children so overloaded. And I can say this in all confidence. I'm teaching alternative provision, alternative provision education to a couple of children in year 10. It's a revelation. 
and, and I had some parents even last night and I love my parents even and they're exhausted and I'm probably a little exhausted after last night and it was great to talk to parents speak to them straight face to face and it builds that relationship and it, it, one of the most essential things you can always do is just talk face to face to somebody know that you you know put a face to them they see you they talk to you and it just helps build that relationship it's brilliant but one of the parents who I'm teaching the child alternative provision to I'm also teaching history was so grateful of like you're teaching my child to do interview skills. You're teaching my child about compound interest. And I've literally, you know, been going, these are lessons in life. This is how to do an interview, mock interview. This is how to do this. And guess what the brilliant thing about it is? I don't have a huge amount of marking. And I don't have a huge sort of big sort of curriculum overview. I'm free to teach those children to a certain extent what they need to be taught, what they need to those children's needs. And even better, I don't have a grade at the end of it. And it's just simply, you know, do your coursework and then get all your evidence in and boom. And it's it's absolutely brilliant. I look forward to those lessons because I get to sit. All right, right, here's the booklet of things. Today, I'll tell you what, let's do some life skills on answering questions. These are closed questions. These are open questions. And literally, I have so much out of those, those handful of kids but to have the parents feedback and go, thank you, they're learning so much in that alternative provision. I says, they're not going to get a GCSE grade out of it. And the parent looked at me straight in the face and said, I know, they've got, all, they've got all those other subjects, all those 10 other subjects, and they're already overloaded. And what they were pleased about was that their child was being taken out of some of the other subjects to take the pressure off them. But actually what they were getting educated in was more valuable, even though it wasn't getting a GCSE grade, because they recognised that their child needs some of the soft skills teamwork you know they need to be able to leave school and my first response to them was i think every child that i'm teaching would actually benefit from that type of curriculum but no you can't do that because open bucket closed bucket here bucket that bucket looking bucket bucket has to be serviced because we have to get our point score up and like oh for but hell, these kids need an education alternative provision. They need financial education. They need education on, on how to survive in the world. And literally, what are they getting us doing? Here's a lesson on the page. And, and that made me think, I'm sorry to those kids. And I will, I will ease off them a little bit once they've, 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 they've realized that they have wounded me. But I am, there I am going to them. Here's a lesson on the page. Here's the content. Get through, get through, get through, get through. Oh, go more, 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 more. And I'm overloading them. But what am I to do? I have to get through a curriculum, which is... And, and Tom, you, you know you're a historian like me. It's an absolute monster. Oh, I have a bit of... It's horrible. Uh, yeah. No, and, I, and, and it's yeah. horrible. It's not how I would teach. It's not how I'd want to teach children. No. And, and I, I think, think about all of the, I think about all of the great stuff that I do with year seven, year eight, and year nine, and even sixth form. And then I look at GCSE and I'm like, I have to compromise on good teaching in order to get through a course which is too busy it's too much and when you've got a range of abilities you all have children who, oh my know. word you've got kids yeah all over the ability range and yeah history in particular has a big problem nationwide about the number of grade threes and uh, compared to the number of grade fours there are many many more students nationally who get a grade three in history compared to those who get a grade four yeah. whereas in english and in maths it's the other way around you have more yeah. students getting a four but a three the bell curve um, doesn't work for history as well. Bell curve does not work. It's got a bit of a slant in it. Anyway, talking about um, well, well, yeah, we've got Paul on the line, Fee Brent. Oh, I love, I love when Paul chips in, my good friend from 
from my ancestors' homeland, Paul. We have established my grandfather was born in, in, in Brutal Bootle in West Derby. Indeed. Indeed. How are you, Brent? Are you okay? I am. You know, I, I think I'm having one of those weeks that you had a couple of weeks ago yeah. when I'm just like, you know, feeling like, you know what? And I, I, I just, you have that low moment when you think, they, they just, I just felt unappreciated. And it was the thing of, do you know what I do for you? Do you know how far I go for you, like, you ungrateful? But in reflection, it was them crying to me to saying, we want you to be teaching us the way we know you can teach us, the way that you fun. They, they want fun Poland. They want fun, fun Brent. That's what they want. Yeah. And what they're getting is kind of functional. We've got to get through this course, Brent. Da, da, da. And maybe they're partly right. But at the same time, there I am slavishly trying to produce resources for them to make their life easier and go, here's a lesson on a page. Here's all the information I've chunked down. Here's your sources. Come on, guys. You've got 15, 20 minutes. But they're looking yeah. at me going like, yeah, we want you up there being the sage and the sage. And I'm going, can't do that. Can't get the time to do that. And maybe they're partly right, but I'm stuck with the curriculum. I'm stuck with trying to do the best. And it's that kind of thing of, I'm doing my best. If my best ain't good enough, I'm really, really sorry, but this is the best that I can do. And maybe there, some of them are doing their best. And yeah, I just then to... think it's the system that it's not getting the best out of me and it's certainly not getting the best out of them. So yeah, we had, a, really we had a, a, poor, a poor chap who was uh, covering our PPA a little while ago. Uh, he came in on his first first PPA session and the head teacher said just let him let him do what what he'd like do you know what I mean let him sort of integrate himself with the kids and you know get get they get used to him and he gets used to them and after after his first day it was like the kids the kids love him oh he's absolutely amazing and I said what did he what did he do with you then and it was like oh we did this game we did that game and everything else the following week when he came in to do PPA, I said, so how how was Sir? How was Sir this week? Oh, he wasn't as good this week. He gave us work to do. <laughs> and that's what it is. They don't they really don't know what they've got. They really don't know what they got. But I know what you mean about the um the parent school contract and everything else. There's the unwritten rule, the, the, oh, the social contract, yeah. Yeah, I mean it's just there's we've all got probably so many examples of of parents who we've bent over backwards for who have then kind of thrown it back in our face with a complaint of nothing or things like this i've got um i've got a couple of kids with diabetes in my class um both from sort of year one age mm. and um one of them's dealt with it very well um polish parents actually just nope he'll be fine he'll be fine just let him do it let him do it and at first we were saying oh well we've had the training and no it's fine he knows what he's doing you know so that's fine that wasn't a problem however we've got a, another girl who's in the same class and has gone through it a very different way because the parents attitude towards it is very different mum's mm -hmm. quite neurotic about it very worried and everything else which i can understand partly but one of our TAs has taken it upon herself to really look after this girl who has um, has a, a tag or whatever it's called fitted, and this alarm is going off oh, six, seven, at least seven, eight times a day in lessons, days oh. all the time, and um, basically, mum has 
coerced this TA into messaging her and letting her know each time what the level is. And I have had a word with, with the TA and said, you, you go in, I appreciate how much effort you're yeah. putting in and everything else, but you're going far and beyond what is expected. And he said, no, it's fine. I don't, I, I don't mind. I don't mind. However, then the other day, the mum came back at the end of the day when the kids have gone home and complained that the TA hadn't messaged her or hadn't said, she, like the kid had got home and yeah. mum had then gone through another test and said, oh, this level was very high. Why didn't why didn't you check and phone me at like quarter to three or something like this? And I just said, I just said, that's out of order. <laughs> she's bending yeah. over backwards for you. You know, she's doing she, all she, of these but things. But the first point of view is like it's expected now. It's like these these kids that get picked yeah. up by taxi because they're not going to school. And we we heard that. Well, was what that come from? Oh, it was Gillian Keegan. Head teachers should be out in in their cars picking up children. Oh yeah, but, that's a good idea. Let's let's start having head teacher taxi services. Well, we're not far <laughs> off it because we've got um, we've got a, a girl who's had a couple of mental health problems, and personally, I think it's it stemmed from mum's attitude to her being in school. It's at the point now where our family support worker, who's unbelievable, but again, is being taken advantage of, and our yeah. and our um our secretary as well, are going to this girl's house every morning because a few weeks ago she was struggling to get, mum um, was struggling to get the child into school. They've been every morning for the past two weeks to pick up this girl from home and bring her to school. And it's not because mum can't get her to school, it's because mum can't be bothered to get her to school. Oh. So we're doing what we would do as teachers, as a hundred things before being a teacher. Bending over backwards and going far and beyond, and, and then the child, and then if the, you had one time you couldn't pick the child up, yeah, it would be why happen? And this is this is the thing. I mean, my dad always my, my dad's a plasterer and he, he he's a working class guy, but he, he's always people smarts. He's one of those individuals like your taxi drivers who've got that level of intelligence. He's brilliant on quizzes, but he's always good with people. He's got he handed that kind of every every sort of quality down to me. It doesn't matter who you are, what you are. And, and he always said some profound things. I mean, he's not listening, so we can get away with this because he'll think I'm kind of sucking up to him because we, we have that adversarial father and son thing going on, you know. We never tell each other how much we, we think, you know, but it's that kind of thing. You know what we're like with our parents. But he always said to me something that does stick with me. He says, the more you do sometimes, son, the more the less you're thought of and the more people expect of you. And, it, and, and, and at the same time, I've always been somebody that does lots of things because... I have the opportunities and 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 this it's because of them it was like if you get the opportunity son do as much as possible help as many people as possible because for me it's the reciprocity one of my favorite movies of all times so a little old movie is with um uh kevin spacey and it was paid forward and it's about a school it's about a schoolboy who just does this thing about i do a good turn to somebody else and they in turn do a good turn to somebody else and they in turn do and that's what we we build we should pay it forward build. yeah it's beautiful and that whole concept of you help people and in return they help you and you're absolutely right you do get some parents you do work so hard for the children work so hard for them and as soon as you do something slightly wrong or say something they don't like they're straight on at you a complaint comes in you're like what yeah what and i've had that recently i sat down with a parent and actually they, they, they were like you didn't give my child the allocation of the time blah 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 have you read is this that the other like yeah 
I have. And in fact, I think if you recalculate the taking out of a question, they were well within the time allocated. And I was there in a face-to-face sort of meeting with, and then straight away it was kind of de-escalated very rapidly. But the email tone and this email and this this almost consistent of the, the, the complaint has to go straight to a head teacher, not to you any longer, not to you, the teacher, any longer. Um, and that's the thing, it's the sort of bypassing of kind of like, I'm going straight to the top. It's, it's like we're a customer service in schools. Like, yeah, I've said before, like we're Starbucks. Can I see your manager, please? What's wrong with the coffee? I don't like you. I'm not talking to you. I want to go straight to the manager. We, we've almost created a society. And this is, this is again, Ofsted, because Ofsted is, if parents complain, Ofsted comes in. I think governments have successfully created and undermined schools enough. The parents are so entitled now and so kind of like, I'm, the school's not doing a good job. Schools are not doing a good job. I'm going to complain. I'm going to go to the press. I'm going to go and and, and literally, maybe sometimes there is some value sometimes in those complaints, but there's just a culture set in of that, isn't it? Of expectation of, well, I send my child to school. You educate them, and I, I still maintain the primary educator is is the people responsible for the children. And when you look at the time that we have those children, 198 days a year, isn't it? Uh, 190 days a year, and you see them how many hours a day over 190 days a year. You think, well, what impact do we actually have? We do have an impact on our children, and schools do have an impact, but there is so much expectation on us to, I think, override what is happening at the rest of those times. And I, I think it's really difficult for us, especially when you are dealing with, I think, some of the parents. To summarize what you're saying, Paul, I think I'm saying as well, I think it's the parents that need the help sometimes more than the children. I think some of the parents are the ones who aren't getting the help because there isn't the help out there when it comes to sure start clubs. There isn't out there up there when it comes to mental health provision. Um, I know that my wife's a psychologist, and part of what she does sometimes is she's not helping the person who's got the needs. She's actually helping the people around the person who's got the needs because they are part of the issue, and solving their issues helps the person with the needs. And I, I think sometimes we're trying to we're trying to educate the people who are educating the people. We saw it during COVID, didn't we? That you know, we send homework home to some families and there just isn't a laptop. There is a digital divide or th- the parents can't simply do the homework because I'll be honest, you're a primary school teacher, Paul, you can back me up on this. I can't do phonetics. Are you telling me there's no way on screen or I can do I can't do it. Do you know, do you know the, 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 oh, this is, this, this is hilarious. Right. I had PowerPoint on today and I was doing, um, I put subtitles in PowerPoint. Apparently, for some reason, um, I can't. When I say now, it comes up no. It won't. It won't pick up in my in my accent. No, no. And the kids, and literally, as it was narration of the lessons, computer lesson, and with networks. And okay, I want you to do the work now. And it comes up. I want you to do the work no. And every time I kept going now, it kept no, no, no. I even changed it to French. I went, you know, now, and it came up no. The thing is, the thing is as well, the old, um, the old sort of schemes and everything were very, very Southern accent kind of based as well. You know, there was, it was very castle and, you know, half and and everything else. Uh, It's changed slightly, but mainly because the people who were teaching it thought, I'm not saying... Do you switch your satinals? What accent? Go down the path. I mean, that's not. You can tell from my accent, I'm never going to be saying that kind of thing to kids in my school. So, you know, it it does. It does alter a little bit. Does phonetics? How does phonetics come across in Skype, my friend? (laughs) 
<laughs> Just to interrupt, gentlemen, it's <coughs> worth pointing out that this show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, publishing professional development books and resources um, to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world. Have you checked out their latest releases? Use the code JCTTR2324 for 20% off your order. That's JCTTR2324. Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. Now, Brent, I'm not sure if you've seen the comments. I've pinned one to the top of the space. Can you read it for us? Oh, oh. don't put me on the spot. Oh, Brent Poland was my... Oh, excellent was my... Brent Poland was my GCSE geography teacher. Honestly, he was the greatest teacher. Who's this? Which Lewis is this? I, I always get my oh designer and cyber. Come on, Lewis, pipe in there. Go to the request. We've invited button. him in. We've invited him in. Good. Come on. He's got a beard. Wait, a minute, Lewis, get a beard. How do I look? My gosh, he's grown up. They always grow up. Come on, Lewis, pipe in there. Come on, talk to me. You can you can tell these guys. <laughs> Siri and all those can speak Northern Ireland. It's true. Siri can. Siri is interesting, actually. Um, this this is <laughs> very, very true. I always put my sat nav to, to the softest Irish accent, which is always very, very good as well. So it's uh, turn left, turn right. And funny that the, the but wife has done that too. She's, she even calls him Sean. Uh, so she, we put the sat nav to, to Irish voice, which my, my kids sometimes find hilarious when some of the words come up. And it's like, you, we, we get that. I even get the kids always playfully sometimes with some words that I fair trade. Uh, so Lewis, they back me up on this. Uh, I, I cannot, people cannot distinguish when I say fair trade, which is kind of like giving people a fair price for their goods, um, which is, you know, helping fair trade. And then there's fur trade. Which is, you know, getting little animals alive and <laughs> getting their furs. So I had a lesson once. I was going, okay, we're doing about fur trade today, sir. Is that not banned? Is that not illegal? No, it's not banned and illegal. Fur trade's not banned and illegal. What do you mean? We go into the co-op. They've got that little symbol. There's the symbol for fur trade. No, the other fur trade. No, what fur trade are you talking about? Oh, you mean fur trade? So yeah, it does sometimes. Beautiful thing of having an accent and being a teacher is sometimes it does throw up some very um, lovely sort of moments when you just have to you have to laugh at yourself and that's one of the beautiful things about about being a teacher as well so let's go back to it let's go back to the social contract then do we then agree that <laughs> i can't believe i'm saying this that amanda spewman is correct that unfortunately the social contract seems to be fractured she's not saying broken fractured between schools and parents that parents are less likely now to send their children to school, which would explain why attendance has dropped. They are more likely to take them on holidays. They are more likely to see that education is less important. What interestingly she is saying as well is, is that there's an unintended consequence. And I thought this was interesting, that the unintended consequence was actually the job that we did during the pandemic. Now, going back to what Tom was saying, and Spielman's not exactly, you know, a, a practitioner in the class and is an outside person looking in. But she does sort of suggest that the job that we did, and it's quite a compliment in some ways, is that the job that we did during COVID actually has the unintended consequence. The fact that we were able to do remote learning, the fact that we saw more children working from home, the fact that we could send resources home to children and itself has weakened schools in a sense that, you know, more people are homeschooling now. And that also, you know, giving the work to parents made more parents probably think, 
actually, hold on a second here. I can do the job of, of, of a teacher. So there might be something in that where some parents themselves, as I say, if parents say they're primary educators, I was talking to a person tonight who's actually a homeschooler and is completely loves homeschooling. They have a group of people around them and they, they suggest that they, they can do the job of teaching the children um, better than it can be done in school. And who am I to argue with a parent with parents saying, I know what's best for my child. I want to educate my child. I'm not going to argue with people if they are educating their children. For me, I just want the children to be educated and I want the best for them. And if a parent is saying that they can do a good job educating their own child, I don't feel any problem I have with that as long as it's not some radical um, school. Because unfortunately, you've seen that springing up where we have, I think, um, some of the far right groups, uh, Patriotic Alternative, for instance, on their website. It's quite concerning that they have, here's a form for removing your child from school if your child wants to be removed from school because of the woke agenda. And, and and there is an increase in people being pulled out of schools for that type of thing. And I do worry about those children falling in the cracks and radicalization. And you talk about, you know, your grooming and your county lines. And the thing about the accountability is, is that schools are a place where you can see the children. They are a place, as we said earlier on, with the likes of the gambling, where we do provide the services of, you know, I think, get... get talking to the children, finding out what's going on with them. If you have a child who's got issues at home, we can help sometimes resolve those issues and equally draw attention to those issues. And there's that kind of extra layer of accountability that schools sometimes are useful in identifying those problems and those issues and facilitating a solution to them. But if you have all these children being homeschooled, where would they go? How would they talk to? You know, there is the isolation of it. And one of the good things about school but it can also be a disadvantage for us is, is there social places where people make friendships schools isn't just about the learning it's about the learning environment it's about those rites of passage it's, it's like going to university and, and managing your finances and having a few shandies there's part of the whole rite of passage of school is navigating your way through school figuring yourself out you know making friends losing friends relationships with people I think there's a lot to it that we've all benefited from aspects of school. We know the negative side, of course. There is, of course, your bullying. But then again, that doesn't just happen in school now. That's happening on cyberspace. It seems that, you know, th there is a culture of that happening in society regardless of school. So I think has she a point there that we in some ways have um, done ourselves with the service and that the job that we did during COVID ironically helped weaken that relationship not that we intended it between home and school and obviously give parents more ideas that they could educate their children or as horrible as it may be I often hear this is said and, and this is no criticism of some when you don't know the situation but some parents were unhappy with the the education that was set during lockdowns that you know there seems to be a mixed, mixed bag of what some schools did what some teachers did and um, what some stepped up and some just sent the work out. I mean, it seemed to be no universal sort of service provided by every school. It depended how how many volunteers for teachers, depended on the nature of the school. You know, there's lots of parents out there who will swear blind that the school was closed. They got no resources. They got no contact from the parents. I can only speak from my own experience that that's not what we did. It's not the type of school that I'm at. We, we made sure we, we sent food parcels out to the community. We... We looked after the kids as much as possible. We we brought in vulnerable children. Um, we had um, 
you know, our vulnerable children every day in school with the skeleton crew. And and, and we, we, we as much as possible try to send out as many resources as possible, do as many online lessons as possible. And and I missed, I'll be honest, I missed the kids. I, I volunteered as much as possible to win the school because I wanted the contact. I didn't like being at home in lockdown. I didn't want to be in lockdown. I wanted to be in my classroom teaching my kids. Um, but is that the case? It were schools in some ways the arbiters of their own doom in the sense that we have showed that there are alternative ways to educate and that school is less important or is that again another one of those COVID smoke screens is another one of those uh, you know it, it's 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 not exactly I think fully true so what do you think are we are we yes or no do you have an issue on that oh children really absolutely true illness and the immune system has been hit with COVID infections Joe that's a really good point children are mainly absent through illness yeah I have noticed a lot more illnesses. I have noticed even more cautious parents. There's not just more illnesses, but actually wanting people to stay off of their ill. There's definitely more, I'm not saying fear, but more caution about children coming to school not well, same as adults. And I think that's definitely a COVID sort of um, fear. But you are correct. There are, I think, a million or so children who would be on that watch list, wasn't it? Immune suppressed uh, children with uh, treatments, um, asthmatic children. Um, same goes for adults as well. There was a group of children out there. Um, and I, I ironically, I felt that some children with um, neurodivergence were actually thriving while they were home and being homeschooled. And in fact, I know in particular, you know, it's like, there's a child, both Tom and I have taught in, in our careers, who absolutely thrived during COVID because mum was in the background listening to my lessons and, you know, and actually taking part in my lessons, which I obviously had no problem with because they were fully, you know, I got some feedback rather than a blank screen. It was great to have at least somebody reply back to me and you go, hello there, hi everybody, camera's off. All right, okay. Is there anybody going to give me feedback? Hello, is there anybody? Other? And, and there's, there was a parent practically involving them in the lessons. Brilliant, come on in. It was a GCSE class. Um, but they they did they came back from the COVID sort of a couple of months off. They came back absolutely thriving because school to them was a place of too many people, too you know too many kids in corridors, too noisy, and they could basically work from home. Well, there we go. Working from home seems to be more the thing. So working from home for some children is that is that is that okay? I mean, is is, is this something that's a positive? Because some schools are overcrowded. Do we need some children? To be educated at home, there is an alternative way of looking upon it that some parents have opted and said, let's take our children out of mainstream education. And maybe they're right. Maybe the parents are right. They know their children. And who am I to criticise parents if, if they're criticising some schools? As a parent myself, schools don't always get it right. They, we do make mistakes. We are fallible. Um, some of that's explainable by the job that we're doing. And obviously as teachers, you know, you put your teacher hat on and defend teachers. But you do read some of those stories in the newspapers and you do think somebody has been a little bit silly there. Somebody has, oh, and you, and you think, oh. And, and then, but then you read between the lines and you go, ah, hold on, there's more to it. So I do think there's no smoke without fire. I think there's a definite, my feeling is that schools have become more corporate. Schools have become more removed from parents. They have built weaker relationships. COVID hasn't helped. But I think there's many things going on rather than just COVID. I think she's wrong, Spielman when she says this is because just because of COVID. I believe, in my estimation, in my opinion, and you'd agree or disagree, that this was happening before COVID. And like many other things, for me, COVID is just accentuated that that sort of weakening of the relationship between parents and, and some schools. I think that would be my read of it. 
you can agree or disagree and welcome to, to message or welcome to, to pipe in. Um, Joe said primary parents send uh, more kids in for the second lockdown. They had a real appreciation of what we did. I'd agree. Absolutely. Some parents were so pleased with what we did. Sadly, that's been eroded by the media and the government since Joe absolutely nailed on. I think it's almost like what we did during COVID has been forgotten about. We got clapped about. We were almost as as, as widely thanked as the nursing profession at some stages. Not as near but we were on that list of people that was getting well done to the teachers and thanks for coming in. Well done to the teachers. Um, and, and and it was like even schools stayed open. All of a sudden, when it's mentioned in the media, schools have been magically closed. And you're like, well, actually, and Joe, you might, you might agree with me. And you're more welcome to pipe in as well if you want. It's almost like what we did during COVID has been airbrushed, gaslit and forgotten. And schools have gone from being open all the way during, during COVID to almost magically being closed for some magical period of time where all this damage has been done. And that's not my recollection of it. We weren't closed that long in that sense. And and even when we were, we weren't fully closed. And equally, we were still delivering lessons. As you rightly pointed out, you know, many of the parents were very grateful and sitting in with my lessons and actually enjoying them. And that's not the 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 the, the experience I had. Um, but has it suited the agenda to vilify us now because we aren't playing ball because we've gone on strike, because we are questioning, because we're annoying. I'll be honest, I posted this this week, and I think um, my theory, and you can, I'm, I'm going on record of saying this in 20 years' time, I'm going to, I'm going to, hopefully I'm not right, I, I think we are being slowly hollowed out as a profession. I think we are schools and, and mainstream education. I think in the future, we are um, an industrial system in a sense that we were a one-size-fits-all for industrial society. We're in a post-industrialist society, and I think naturally what's happening is it is a progression away from large institutions, the same as large companies. When you look at the, the, the future of, of companies and even employment, I think the way education is done in this country on a large scale is at risk. And I think it's naturally at risk because of the changes in technology and society. And I think COVID is just, for me, it's accelerated that, and maybe that naturally would happen, that our schooling of the past is not going to be the schooling of the future and what schools are going to be in the future is, isn't what they are now. So that would happen anyway because that's happening in society and this is we're just in the middle of this and can't see it, but 20 years down the line, we might laugh and say, we used to have classes of 30. What? Kids didn't do this. So is this part of a societal shift is what I'm saying? Is this going to happen anyway as regards to technology? Because it used to be your teacher was the most intelligent person, one of the most intelligent people you knew. And they were an expert in physics. They were an expert in this. They were an expert in that. There is less of that needed now because you can just simply have the AI or you can simply have the computer. I used to have the only computers I knew were in school. Now the computers we have in school are way not as good as the computers you have at home. So there's a definite feeling, I think, that education is at risk in its current form of in some ways, changing to we don't have kids lined in desks. We don't have now the successful schools in the country would say the opposite to that. They're getting the grades and the results, but are they? What are they producing? Are they producing children who are able to function? Are they happy? Are they going to go off to university and be successful? And how is it going to benefit society? Again, it's down to statistics and, and damn statistics. So we are. Brent, you've got just over oh, three minutes left. But I was just going to remind myself. Yeah. Oh, far away. Who have I got? Let me just change my settings there. Hopefully, oh. Jay can find the mute button and or the unmute button, which is in the bottom left of her screen. 
Hello, Joe. Hey. Hi, Brent. Just going to say, yeah, agree with lots of things. I think it's um, multiple issues, isn't it? It's society is changing, accountability, everything lands on schools. Um, parents don't seem to be accountable. The government's certainly not accountable. It's never anybody else's fault. Um, we're picking up more social services, more mental health problems. You know the drill. Um, mm. I, I don't think it comes down to one factor. But I do, I do think um, parents, like over the last 15, 20 years, this has been coming down the road. And I think, like you mm. say, the COVID factor increased it and the vilification of teachers in the media have definitely increased things. But it's how do we turn that round now? It's not going to be an easy fix. Yeah. It, it, you're right because it's it's everything's so scrutinised and 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 all the good stuff that we do. You're right, all the good stuff that we do doesn't get talked about, doesn't get thanked. It's it's like one of my colleagues said that they had a good, really good set of results last year, and they'd been they'd been criticised the previous year. And I welcome and says they're really good results. Well done with that class. He says you're the first person to say that to me. He says, well, I suppose if you didn't do so well, oh, I'd know about it then. The whole positivity yeah. seems to have gone, isn't it? There's no kind of like. But even that, I mean, it's nice to see one of my ex-pupils there, and and and, I, and one of the, one of the reasons I still love this job is, is is I do get the appreciation of some of my ex-pupils who then understand what the job that we are doing, and it's lovely to get that, and it's lovely to get the parents' support. But the number against is increasing, isn't it? And the number four is kind of going the other way a little bit. We still get those good parents, we still get the magnificent children, but the worst is getting worse, and the critical criticism is getting louder, and it's like a smaller group of individuals are getting lots of traction, isn't it? Like those news stories that are small, like like the Furby things. Here's a classic one, isn't it? That that was all made up. But that made national press, this idea that children were, teachers were allowing children to become, you know, identify as cats. And it's all complete nonsense. But that, that went through to the national media. And you think, what about the state of our building? What about those things? And it's like, there is a kind of criticism of us that's easy to almost do. I equate it to a bit like the, the campaign against the European Union, which, I'm not getting get into it too much, but that was that was a long game of 25 years where every story was, and they used to make it up, you know, Europe wants to straighten our bananas, wants to straighten our sausages, or after Newcastle, Brian Eel, and all that was actually all nonsense. But it didn't have to be true, it just chipped away and made that impression and changed people's impression, that long burner, you know? So is that what you're really, you're thinking, we just, how do we turn it around in the media? Um I think we just keep doing the job that we're doing. And you're right, if we win more parents over by the job that we do and, and the good ones out there, hopefully we'll have our backs more and maybe need to be empowered more. But maybe it's one of those things, unfortunately, Joe, it might be when we're not there that people appreciate you. They appreciate you when you're not there. You know, when they, they see the job you've done, they don't, don't, what do they say? You don't know what you've got until it's gone, isn't it? Yeah, but I mean, the thing is with the parents as well now, it's interesting that it tends to be our younger parents and they went through the system of SATs and they went through the newer stages of curriculum. And I think the way schools have changed, and like you say, with all the pressures and all the curriculum, we've lost what school used to be about and that developing the love of learning and yeah. the enjoyment factor. And I'm guilty of it. You know, I mean, a child came to me today after registering. They're starting to tell me all this story about what's going on at home and what they're excited for at the weekend. And I was like, yeah, yeah, that's great. Right, anyway, we've got to get on now. And then I'm thinking, what the hell am I doing? You know, I know. And you feel so guilty, don't you? And you think, and you think, you feel, you, cause, but then you hate yourself. You think, what have they done to me? What have they created? They're turning me into a monster. Exactly. And, I'm becoming this 
machine, this cog in this network of let's churn out these robots, let's churn out this um, corporate image, every classroom being consistent, every teacher, know. you know, having to teach the same curriculum. I loved my primary school education because I was like 70s generation. And I had teachers that were dead into the Victorians. We studied them. We did all sorts on them. We had, you know, secondary teachers that would choose what text they wanted us to follow. And they were yeah. passionate about it. They were specialists. Yeah. And they were intrinsically motivated. And they passed. My art teachers, like my, my primary school teacher was exactly that. We used to go for nature walks in the countryside. I knew what a drumland was when I was about seven. I knew what glaciation was. They just had that freedom to impart knowledge in a Yoda kind of way, you know, in that kind of, they were there, they, they were teachers, yep. but they were knowledgeable, respectful people. And also my parents had such reverence for them. There was that aspect of your teacher was a person that was looked up to, respected, yep. liked. And even when they got something wrong, there was still an element of, all right, fair enough. They, 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 forgive, they were more easy to forgive them because they knew that we were lucky to have them. And in fact, one of my primary school teachers had taught my mum and, and, and that you have that generational thing of, the ethos of the school didn't change. The consistency was there. You know, yeah. and that's, that we're, you're right. We are losing that consistency. And I think you've got a really good point about some of the younger parents because they've been institutionalized themselves. They haven't got that sort of buying of what, almost like they haven't got that memory of school was like in the, the halcyon days of fun, freedom and, and, and everything else. But yeah, but uh, you, thank you, Joe. That's absolutely spot on. I think you've, you've really an interesting point, actually, about some of the younger parents. I never thought of that. That, that does actually ring through a little bit with what I'm, what I'm saying as well. And being a Brent, your generation, time's up because... Oh, um, don't you give me the time's up. Your because time's up. Much like an online parents every appointment, Paul Hazard's over on Podbean talking about... Oh, please, by all means, shift over to Paul. War zone. So you've got about a minute to wrap things up now, Brent. Uh, but thank you, Joe. I'm, I'm absolutely spot on. And thank you, Paul, as always, uh, my, my, my friend and brother from um, from, from the, the land of, of Scouts, which obviously the other Tom is as well. And thank you, Tom, as well, for your contributions. And equally, you can listen back to us on uh, where you get your podcasts. Uh, we've got the weekly review coming up on Sunday, which is going to be an absolute stonker as well. And, of course, we've got um, the, the poppy tomorrow morning, the good, the good poppy tomorrow morning. Uh, good listen back on Tom's uh, this week, which is Monday. And, of course, I've also mentioned, I, I think, one of the best shows I've heard in ages, which is Lucy's on Afghanistan. And hopefully Paul's will be equally as good. So thank you very much. Thank you, everybody, chipping in. And I'll see you next Thursday. When, wing, when Wingman will be back with me next Thursday as well. And before I go, I'd like to pay homage to... It was Christmas Eve, babe, that in the drunk tank. I'd like to say my homage to the man who passed away today, Shane McGowan, one of my favourite songwriters of all time. And, and obviously I saw him live on many occasions, a poet, uh, a troubled individual. And sadly, I think, unfortunately, it gone too early. But of course, Kirsty McCall did as well. That's both of them. And hopefully that song can get to number one um, because it is a Christmas song in England. But in Ireland, it is not a Christmas song. Much like Die Hard is not a Christmas movie. But I'll leave you on that little humdinger. And it's good night to me.